0: And the caller was actually closer than I was to the bull within within 40 yards of this bull. So he bugles. The bull turns and charges my buddy. He gets within 10 feet of my buddy, antlers like towards my buddy, like he's charging. You are now tuning
1: in to the Rough Next
0: podcast
1: with your host, Cole Nixon. One last thing before we get into today's episode. A lot of people ask how they can support the podcast. Well, I have a couple easy ways. The first way is just listen and subscribe. And another thing you can do is go follow the Roughnecks podcast on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube as well. If you get something out of today's show, then do me a favor. Share it with a friend. If you really want to go above and beyond to support the podcast, then head over to roughnextpodcast.com and get you some of that merch. I appreciate all of the support, but let's get into today's episode. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. This is episode 123, and uh, we're just going to jump right into it. I don't think I have any announcements or anything. So joining me today has been a guest that, once again, I have this usually pretty often, and it's mainly because of me, but uh, you, a guest that I've been working on getting on for a while now. But Mr. Phillips, welcome to the Roughnecks Podcast.
0: Hey, thanks a bunch for having me. I know we've been, you know, working on trying to get together to to chat for a little while. Um, glad we can do it now. And it's the prime time right now getting into fall.
1: Exactly. This is the uh, best time. It also makes awesome. it a little more difficult, I feel like, for both of us being fall season. And uh, some things are going on in the fall, which we'll probably get into talking about. But uh, just to kick off this episode, I wanted to let you give a background on who you are for the people who do not know who you are.
0: Yeah. uh, My name is Billy Phillips. Um, A lot of people know me as William Phillips on like Instagram and things like that. But um, my friends call me Billy. Uh, I'm an outdoorsman, have been my whole life. Uh, A lot of hunting and fishing and falconry, uh, which I know we're going to get into a little bit later. I grew up uh, in the D.C. area. Um, I have a landscaping business and we do government contracts in D.C. So uh, that keeps me really busy, but it also affords me the flexibility to kind of hunt when I want to. And, um, yeah, so that's where it is. I've got a family, um, and everyone's involved in the outdoors and the family too. Uh, and like I said, I, I grew up in a hunting and fishing outdoors family, so it's not like a stretch for me <laughs> to be an adult and be, be outside all the time.
1: Yeah. I want to, we're going to definitely get into the falconry part of things, but you, I want to kind of just talk about it since it just happened so recently, you just went on a nice little hunt, kind of take us through what the hunt was and just kind of how the trip went overall. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I just went on an elk hunt, and it's a it's a hunt that I go on every year uh over the counter and um in, in Colorado and uh and if I can give any advice to folks out there looking to do public land and things like that, the way that we did it worked out so well. Um I wasn't the one who initially set this up. A buddy of mine, Dale Gertz, actually set this up twenty-five or thirty years ago. So he found a rancher that uh, his property backed up to BLM land and like 30,000 acres plus of uh, public land. So what he was able to do is the rancher allowed him to stay on the property and use his access roads to access the backside of the public land. And the only way to get to that public land was either through his private land or to hike in you know, 14 Mm -hmm. hours, you know, you know, a full day or two to get to those spots. So we're able to drive, you know, on the private and then just hop a fence and we're miles and miles back in. So it's a shortcut. I know there's there's a lot of folks out there, the campaigns guys and the elk fit guys who they're like, yeah, I just want to go 10 miles one way, you know, (laughs) but I'm, I'm not in that kind of shape to be able to do that, you know, but, uh, if there's any advice, I would say do it that way. Try to get that private access. And maybe even if you're not hunting the private, I'll ask them to get the access to that public. So anyway, um, I went out with my nephew, Tyler, and my good buddy, Taylor Chamberlain. Uh, some of you guys may know him as the the urban bowman. Um, good dude. Him and I hunt the burbs together year round around washington dc for the overpopulated deer but uh so we went out and i was the only one who had really had much experience elk hunting and i'm not an expert but uh we had a great trip um the very first morning i called in a bull for my nephew and that taylor had spotted and uh we were glassing another mountain and, um, Taylor said, I see a bull and I'm looking at the mountain. I'm like, where's it at? He's like, it's right there in front of us a hundred yards away. And we just lucked out and we were able to, uh, to sneak in. And, and I called that bull in to my nephew and, um, he was able to get a shot. So that was cool. Um, I also, uh, I think the first morning that I hunted in that, um, that I was not the caller, uh, my nephew actually called in a nice bull for me. And it got to within about 150 200 yards, and then I, I just stalked into within range. And as soon as I saw antler tips, I knew I was close enough. And he luckily stepped out and gave me a, a small window that I was able to capitalize on. But uh, it was a nice, nice uh, six by six that I got. Not not huge or anything, but it was. Uh, any elk for me personally is is a, is a trophy, and and the meat is absolutely incredible. So mm-hmm. that was a that was a great hunt and anyone out there who's looking to elk hunt especially if you're a turkey hunter if you're a good turkey hunter you can be a good elk hunter absolutely it's a that is to me it's it's one of the ultimates when it comes to to bow hunting and i've bow hunted in multiple countries have been to you know to africa multiple times um i've hunted all over the country and for many different species and i would say elk is Got to be up at the top. Now I haven't done Moose yet, but that's on mm-hmm. the list either next year or the following year. I've got a deposit in for um for uh, British Columbia. But uh yeah, Elk is absolutely incredible. Yeah, what a good trick.
1: Every story that I've heard of, like people doing it, and like you know, everybody's seeing the camera and stuff on Instagram, and it, and it is I've never done it. It's something that I've definitely wanted to get into but i also know it's you know it does take you, you gotta have somebody that does somewhat know what they're doing because otherwise you're never gonna really do well and you talked about the hiking in that's something that we've talked about at work because we talk about this kind of stuff all the time but it's like yeah the good places to go you gotta hike miles and miles in But here's the thing that people always forget. Like you hike that in. All right, you hike in. And so you do get, you you know, you get a bull. You got to pack all that meat out. (laughs) Like it's, and you got to process to get it all back. So that's why, you know, you guys got that private land that you can just make that quick short or quick uh, cross. And it makes it a little easier for you guys. And it's, those things are hard to come by, but you also don't know until you ask. You got to go try and like, they're out there. There's plenty of opportunities like that out there. You just got to kind of, Work your way around it, or and work towards it.
0: It takes it, it takes a lot of effort to find those places, but once you do, you you know you hold on to it as long as you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, talking about packing out. I mean, even even though we are able to access that that land there, we still have to pack out miles. I mean, it's a couple mm-hmm. miles that we're actually going back to get to our vehicle. So, you know, it is it does make it a little bit easier. Um, but having said that the the trip is tough you know we're, we're hunting at 85 to 8700 feet in elevation um every day we're going roughly 10 miles some days more some days less uh we're gaining 2500 feet in elevation you know each hunt a morning hunt and then an evening hunt so you know it it seems like you're always going uphill. You know, if you see an elk and, and you spot one, you locate one, you're always going uphill to mm-hmm. it. And uh, it, there, there's a mental piece that I think is is more important than physical. Like Taylor and I talked about this, and and he literally did zero to to get ready for this hunt. Nothing. he's used to working, walking 40 yards from his truck, you know, in the suburbs and people's backyards. And he did nothing mentally, though. The dude is is strong and stubborn. So when when you're packing, you know, 100 pounds out on your back or even just walking out, trying to get back to your vehicle every day, multiple times a day, it's a mental battle, you know, and and you can overcome a lot of physicality. You know, I think like David Goggins and these other people who are like, yeah, when you think you want to quit, you still have another 48 percent left, mm-hmm. you know, that you can keep going. And, you know, you have to earn your bull. Yeah. If, if you want it easy, I probably wouldn't elk hunt, you know, go go pay for a high fence ranch or something if you really want an elk and you don't want to work for it. But if you want to earn your bull, then, man, there's nothing better. And then having that meat in the freezer, it is delicious. It's like. I, I can't even describe if you've ever had moose i mean it's similar to that but um it's like sika deer or it's like a beef that has a great flavor but there's no you know gamey taste or things like yeah. that and i mean it's better than white tail and I, I eat six or seven whitetail every year <laughs>
1: The I wanted to talk about the elevation factor because I feel like that's something that people sometimes forget about. Is you know where I've always heard stories, and I think uh, so uh, what's his name, meat eater guy, uh, Steve, I forget his last name, Ronaldo. Yeah, he he talk, you know it's like once you hit a certain point, it's like you are breathing through a straw into a paper bag or something like that. <laughs> is that kind of <laughs> true, or is there kind of? I mean, I've definitely heard there's elevation factors that play into that.
0: Yeah, so I've never I've never hunted above nine thousand. So that's you know the higher you go, the worse it gets, right? But still at eighty five hundred feet, eighty six, you know, up to nine thousand, there is definitely a noticeable difference, you know. So I'm a flatlander, and I'm I'm sitting right now at about six hundred feet in elevation. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a huge difference. Now we fly into Denver, and you can immediately feel like Hmm, There's just a little bit less oxygen. And then we go up multiple thousands of feet. So uh, when you get out there, what we always say is, man, the first climb, you feel like, and really, it doesn't matter if you prepared or not. But that first climb, the first 30 yards of it, you go, oh, my gosh, I have a week of this. And I just started and my legs are on fire. I'm breathing hard. My heart rate's, you know, 170. And I'm I'm like this is going to be a problem, but it seems like the second or third day you like catch a maybe you get acclimated to it, or you catch a second wind, or maybe you just hear bulls bugling, so the motivation factors through the roof. But that second or third day, you know, the, like the fifth or sixth climb, you're you're just ready to rock and you and you go. It's still hard, but you know you definitely notice it and. One thing that I've done on every one of my elk trips is I pace myself. And you know that's kind of a cliche. People say, oh, pace yourself, pace yourself. Don't burn yourself out. And what that means to me is if I'm going up a mountain, whether it's after a bull or, or I'm pack, packing out or I'm just walking back to camp um, and I, I'm struggling a little bit mentally, I just start counting. And I... I count my steps, so I'll do 150 steps, or if I'm really beat and I've got a big pack, I'll do 50 steps, or if I'm struggling with 50 steps, I'll knock it down to 25 steps and then take a break. So every time I make that step goal, you know, I'll stand there, take a break, I look at my watch and see what my, uh, my heart rate's doing, and I get my heart rate down to, let's say 120 or so, and boom, I start again. And I start counting again. And then by the end, you know, you just you feel like you've you've broken it down into easier manageable chunks. So the you know, it it's a it's a mental game that I I play with myself in order to get through that elevation, the lack of oxygen, the legs burning, and and all of those physical factors. Yeah, you're
1: yeah. almost combining the mental aspect of it with the physical aspect of it because you know, you set yourself a goal, you set that small goal, you know, even if it is 25 steps, you don't want to stop before those 25 steps. Like that's the mental part. You have to be mentally there. Like, all right, I I just, it's just 25 steps. I'm just going to get there and do these 25 steps. And I've talked about it on this podcast a lot where, you know, you, you, you you have the end goal. Your big end goal is just obviously getting back and being done. But like, you have to have those small goals in between you can't climb a ladder if the steps are super far apart you have to have the small steps in order to get to the top get to where you want or whatever the end goal is and it's uh it's definitely a probably not an easy thing to balance the minute mani- the mental along with the physical of that whole hunt especially well, if you're not used to like you talked about you know getting acclimated but like and you said there's no way you can necessarily train for it especially unless you like live in that kind of climate because like you can work out, you can go run, you can walk, you can do everything that you need to but once you get into that different elevation it's going to play a factor.
0: It it absolutely is and where where being in super shape helps is in a situation like this. Let's say it's an evening hunt, you're glassing and you look over at the horizon you see there's an hour until sunset and there's a bull with a hot cow and their satellite bulls harassing and they're going crazy. And they're as the crow flies, you know, a mile away and you've got to drop and lose a thousand feet in elevation. And then you've got to climb another thousand feet in elevation to get over to them. And you basically have an hour and 15 minutes to do it. Now, if you're not in, fantastic shape it's going to be difficult to get there in the time that you need to to seal the deal that's where that's where the the physicality for me comes in the other the other spot that it comes in is when you want to get past the crowds on public land and you know a lot of guys will go in a mile or 2 miles if you go in 5 miles you are in a better position to to capitalize on you know fairly unpressured bulls then The pack out, I I don't really know if I'm sure you can physically get ready for a pack out like that if you're carrying 100 pounds all the time. But, you know, when you when you carry if you're doing solo, which I've never done, I've only done it with a group of three, two to three, um, even two to three people. If you have two people guaranteed, you're going to you're both going to have at least two trips back and forth with three people. If everyone really loads down, you can get it done in one, but it's really, really difficult. A lot of times one person or two people have to go back for the rest of that meat. Um, But when you get back to the truck and you've got, you know, all of your meat back there, and then you still have to go back and get your antlers or the head and the cape and things like that. (laughs) There are times when you look at it and go. I don't want to do that again. I just, you know, that stuff, I just want to leave there, forget it. I'll just remember the memory and the pictures at times. But you always go back and mentally, you know, you force yourself to 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 get back into it. And, and you can overcome a lot of that physicality with mental, but you can also prepare. Uh, you can prepare for a hunt like that. And you will be more successful the better prepared you are on an elk hunt and i mean if you get into sheep hunting or goat hunting that's just that's at a different level literally and figuratively a different level in elevation and then and the fitness that you need to be ready for
1: yeah because those things can stand on the side of mountains like straight up and down <laughs> they find anywhere they can yeah
0: absolutely and some of the some of those hunts are dangerous you know hmm. you you're looking at
1: I mean, there's been—I I, can't—I don't have an exact number, but there's been plenty of stories of people that a lot of people can die, like have died during those type oh. of hunts, falling off the, you know, falling off
0: cliffs and stuff like that. Absolutely, and I mean, it's—it's it's very easy to be injured, even on the the, you know, an elk hunt like the the way that we do it. There's a potential that you could die. I mean, there mm. are cliffs there. There are rock ledges. You could have rocks fall on you. You could get gored by an elk. In fact, uh, two years ago. Um, I was hunting with a buddy, two buddies out there, and the way that we set up our hunts is we rotate one person is a caller, one person is the primary shooter, they're the A shooter, you have the, or we call them the A hole, you have the B hole, they're kind of like a backup shooter, and then you have the C, and the C is the caller. Well, the the caller sets up, uh, the A shooter kind of says, all right, this is, I, I control the hunt, we're going to set up this way. I'm going to go over here. Bee shooter, just back me up. So on this particular hunt, we had heard a bull in this bowl at the, at the head of this big long draw. And the only way to get to it was to drop all the way down to the, to the foot of the draw at the creek and then come up to, to work the thermals that were coming in our face that morning. So we got all the way up to this bull and we were within 150, 200 yards of it. And I was the backup shooter, the b shooter, and the call- the caller was down below me. The A shooter was out in front, and the caller started calling, and the bull comes out, and the A shooter actually got a shot, but missed and The bull kind of spooked a little bit and kind of ran heard something but but ran over to a place where I got a shot and i It was moving, and there was it was about to disappear and I took a long shot, but I had to guess on the yardage and that it was a lot longer than I expected. Um I, I didn't have my range finder out and just no time to range. So I guessed and I shot under that bull. Well, when I shot. the As soon as I shot, the caller actually bugled at the bull and the caller was actually closer than I was to the bull within. Within 40 yards of this bull. So he bugles the bull turns and charges my buddy. He gets within 10 feet of my buddy antlers like towards my buddy, like he's charging. But my buddy was in these in, in this behind this Aspen tree. And there was some like scrub oak that he was kind of hiding in. And the bull didn't see, didn't see anything and turned and ran down the draw. Well, my buddy bugles at him again. Well, this bull stops on a dime turns and throws his antlers down and charges right at him it gets to within i mean within feet i mean the antlers actually went around the aspen tree that he was hiding around and i mean it's charging and like trying to attack this bull that it can't see and i don't know why but the bull like kind of freaked maybe it caught a whiff or or something or didn't see a bull there within the feet of him and turned and ran and stopped and turned back around and lowered his antlers again at the bush that my buddy was in. And at that moment, my arrow hit him. And it, it luckily, I think very luckily, I actually spined him and he dropped. And my buddy's, my buddy was calling, he's screaming, shoot him again, shoot him again. And I just kept shooting. You know, I shot every arrow in my quiver except for one and I ran down to him. And I'm about to shoot him again. And he he expired right there in front of me. So I ran over to my buddy because at this point I thought he had been gored. Because the just the angle that I was at, the antlers went into the bush that he was in. I'm like, he's gored. And you know, we're an hour, hour and a half from the truck. You know, there's no we're we're in deep trouble. I get over there, my buddy stands up, and he is shaking like a leak. He's sweating profusely. And he was completely unscathed. He didn't get touched. I couldn't believe it. So once we found out that he was okay, I, I realized, oh, I just filled my tag. I, got, <laughs> I shot a bull. I I was completely blown away that I had killed this elk because I was, I was literally just trying to shoot it to keep it off of my buddy Blaze. One of the most intense experiences I've ever had hunting and one of the closest I've ever had to someone actually dying. It was very close to him getting gored by this elk. It was incredible. So there are dangerous times out there just from an animal, a cliff, you know, falling off a mountain. You know, on, on another trip, we had a guy on a, on a four-wheeler, and uh, he was riding along the edge of this creek. And for some reason, the the bank on the creek just gave out. Like it was undermined a little bit, it gave out, the quad came down, he flew off of it, and the quad rolled on top of him. Luckily, he was spry and he was able to jump out of the way, but that quad landed on his leg, shattered his ankle completely. So we had to get him out of there. It took us hours to get him out of there. And uh, and then we got back to to a an emergency uh it was like a kind of an emergency care type deal, but it said emergency on the side of it. We walk in and they, they're like, "Well, we can't do X-rays here. We don't even have an X-ray machine." So, and and they ended up driving out and back. So he had to drive from Colorado all the way to Maryland with his foot up on a dash, or he rode, he didn't drive, but with his shattered ankle up on a dash, and had to get surgery when he got back. So, wow. I mean, there are dangerous times out there. So, um, I mean, just the just a rock sliding out from under you can. Can be disastrous. So you have to be careful that mental piece of it. Can't be scared of it, but you also can't be reckless.
1: Yeah, you have to be yeah. aware of your surroundings and the things that could happen. Because, yeah, man, it, like you said, a lot of times you're an hour and a half, hour, you know, hour plus into the woods before you can even get back to the truck or whatever. But that doesn't even involve, involve going to the emergency room or whatever you can find to go to. Yeah,
0: but, I don't think he got medical attention for like six hours. Wow you know With the shattered ankle yeah and and like i said we're on we're on public um when and actually he was actually on private at that point so we were at, yeah that's right he was actually on private land and we, it still took us 6 hours to get him to an emergency center that didn't even have an x-ray machine and and that from our camp it was only like a 30 minute drive to the to the emergency room so it still took 6 hours so it can be you know those things can be dangerous, but for anyone looking to do an elk hunt and that worries you, you know, I know the risks, but man, you gotta get after it. You absolutely have to get after it if you want to go do something like that. And believe me, it's rewarding. If you can earn your bull out there, it's rewarding.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by RoughNextPodcast.com. If you want to support the podcast, then head over to RoughNextPodcast.com and grab you some of that RoughNext merch. We have everything from T-shirts, long sleeves, sweatshirts, hats, and many more. Stay up to date on the website for new merch coming every couple months. You can place an order and it'll get sent directly to your door. And I don't even take any of the money from it. The money gets put right back into the podcast to continue to improve it for you. If you can't afford to buy some merch this time, then simply just Subscribe to the newsletter, and it'll keep you up to date on all the new things that are coming. I appreciate all of the support you guys give. It doesn't go unnoticed. Let's get back to today's episode. I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about the the suburbs,
0: correct? Yes, yes, uh, a ton, really.
1: So, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's different hunting than what I typically do. I don't necessarily hunt the suburbs, but there's the suburbs around me that, you know, like, it's the overpopulation thing, which is, I believe, what something that you mentioned, and they allow, allow bow hunting. They don't allow gun hunting, but bow hunting is, um, you know, available for those because it just became too overpopulated, you know, deer walking down the main Town, like right in the middle of downtown of the the suburb, it's like, well, you might need to do something about this. Kind of just take us through what, you know, how you got into hunting the suburbs and like why that became a thing for you, something that you enjoy to do and uh, what it's like.
0: So after college, I moved to Atlanta and, you know, for, for you guys that, I mean, you guys know the Seek One boys and I'm good friends with them, you know, and and uh, they do a ton In the suburbs as well but when i was down there i i fly fished a ton you know i've always loved hunting but i lived like a couple miles from the Chattahoochee river so i was in that river like 150 days a year i fished a lot i did some suburban hunting there but you know i wasn't uh i I didn't really go through the process of really trying my hardest to get away and i was like well i'm filling my time with fishing and I, i had a good time Then I moved back to the DC area and I wanted to get really focused on bow hunting again. So I started to knock on doors. And man, I knocked on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of doors. And I was teaching in a in an affluent area just outside of DC. And multi, multi multi-million dollar homes scattered throughout for miles. And there were all these creek bottoms you know, in between these houses and HOA areas. And every time i drive through these neighborhoods, you'd see just gobs and gobs of deer. So I was teaching and I had a few students who their parents would complain about deer. They would say, I heard you're a bow hunter. Um, Would you come and kill these deer that are eating my landscaping? I said, yeah, absolutely no problem. So the first place that I went, this fella had a bunch of holly trees that he had planted along his driveway. And they looked like palm trees. They were eaten six feet up. And these are holly trees. I mean, deer don't necessarily eat holly trees very often, but every single one of them had a browse line that was five, six feet off the ground. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy has a major, major deer problem. And every time I went there for, I mean, 30 hunts probably, I killed a deer. Well, right off of his driveway, I noticed, you know, you, you you know that definition of insanity: if you keep repeating the same thing and expecting different results, you're insane. Well, off of his driveway, there was this, this embankment that dropped off into this creek bottom, and I looked, and there were probably fifty or sixty uh, holly trees that had been eaten all in the same pattern, and he would just rip them up throw them down in, into this gully and then replant new ones and then rip them up and throw them back down in the gully when they were destroyed and it was just this giant waste of money I mean, people putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into the landscaping to have it decimated within a few weeks by deer so that kind of started and then it snowballed from there people contacted me i found other places and, and it just it it turned into it it really turned into a little bit of a problem, you know, because I would have landowners calling me, begging me to come out and hunt. And I'm already hunting. I'm hunting another property that's overpopulated. We're like, please come out, please send these deer out. And I got other buddies involved and and shot a lot of deer in those areas. And it really snowballed. It wasn't it wasn't something that was very difficult to get into probably because i really don't care if someone tells me no i'll just go find someone else it doesn't really affect me i i would go and i dress you know fairly nicely and i I speak to the landowners and ask them about their problems and you know with deer and things like that and ask them if they were if if they would allow hunting and they'd say yes or no and i did i did have some people who were you know, threatened to call the police on me just because I asked them if I could, if I could hunt there. But in general, even if they were completely opposed to hunting, they would say, no, no, thank you. It was, you know, it's just a no, and knock on the next door. And, um, a lot of times those things snowballed from there. And I've, I've been hunting the burbs since 2005. Um, and it's, it's been awesome. Now, you know, it, it's a lot easier if you want to get into suburban hunting if you focus on antlerless deer, if you're just looking to shoot monster bucks and in, in, in um, these suburban areas, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. Um, and you're going to have to be you, you won't have as many properties and many opportunities. But when I mean, you're you're targeting specific bucks, um, I have a, a few techniques for doing that. Uh, me personally. I mean, I, I've shot. Oodles and oodles of deer. And I'm not really, I, I, I love shooting big bucks and I do it. You know, I, I try to shoot, you know, one or two every year, but I'm not one of those guys who's 100% focused on, I've got to shoot a 200 inch buck. It just doesn't really resonate for me. Um, I, I'm not I'm not that obsessed about a single animal. I'd rather go out and hunt and enjoy myself. And If a deer comes in and I'm excited about it, I'm going to shoot it. Or if a doe blows at me, Oh, she's, she's, she's cooked. I'll go. That's a deer that I will go after as hard as I can. If I get busted by a deer, I'm shooting. (laughs) But, um, you know, there's, that's, that's the way that I got into it. Um, there's a lot more competition now. There's a lot of people who are out, you know, suburban hunting now because, you know, of the things that we've done, um, on hunt urban and, um, and the seek one guys. And there's, there's a lot of people all, all over the country because, I mean there's opportunities out there to to definitely do it. and if you just want to get the opportunity to hunt you know in a suburban area start out you know working that antlerless angle and and saying hey I'm I'm helping with population control the bucks are there they're going to come by so you know it, it, at least that's that's an in um for any of the listeners who who would like to get into it
1: yeah, a lot of people I don't feel like realize there is like there is overpopulation issues. All, I mean, all around the country in areas where you know there shouldn't be an overpopulation. There, there's not as many people hunting anymore today. I feel like I could be completely wrong about that, but I feel like the the hunting has definitely decreased, and they they they're starting to push into these areas to where you know they and deer are smart. They're going to go to the area where they don't necessarily have the pressure, but still have the you know the resources, the food resources to eat. Um, but it's the one thing I really like that you said talked about was you know hunting and like enjoying yourself. That's what hunting is all about, really. Like it's yes, it's not it's very rewarding to you know knock down a big bull or a, you know a nice two hundred inch deer, or whatever. And it's even rewarding to shoot the duck, the antlerless deer. But you know it, it, it's all about getting in the woods, spending time out in the woods, and just you know being able to actually relax and enjoy yourself.
0: Yeah, and and for the folks who strictly. Big Buck hunt that's enjoyable for them too, mm-hmm. and i don't i am just not the type of guy who knocks other people for hunting. I just you know I like to enjoy it the way that I do and I prefer to hunt you know with a bow um I do try to take trad equipment out every now and then at least a couple times a year um but usually on you know bigger properties and things like that but um okay I've got no problem I have no problem hunting with a rifle with. A muzzleloader, a shotgun, uh, a bow—I mean, a crossbow. I've killed deer with a crossbow before too, and I, you know, I, I prefer hunting with a vertical bow. Uh, but I don't—I don't really knock anyone for for getting out and doing it. And you know, you mentioned—you know, there are fewer people hunting, and you know, that goes along with this big debate that has gone on over the past year about the over abundance of hunters on these public lands. You know, you have the hunting public that's out there and, and uh the meat eater guys who are really pushing public and and there's so many people out there who are accessing public land now. And it's great because we're increasing the number of hunters, but now that public land's being a little bit overrun. And people are even complaining and saying oh we, we need to stop encouraging people to to uh hunt public land. I'm taking a different perspective on that. And what I think has happened is, is the, I don't think people have necessarily lost interest in hunting. I think they've lost their hunting properties more. How many people do you know, have you, oh, I used to hunt that farm over there and now it's all houses. It's all townhomes. It's a community now. So they lost hundreds of acres of hunting land. It was their one sole place that they hunted. So, well, now I don't have a place to hunt anymore. So I get out of hunting. I don't hunt anymore. I'm done with it. Because it was easy. It was fun. It was relaxing. Now I don't get to do it anymore. If they want to be revived and get back into hunting, it's difficult to find private access. So the only option you have is public. The public lands are not growing. And private lands are shrinking that you can possibly hunt. Enter in the urban setting. you do have the opportunity at least to hunt whitetails um you know so i would advocate more private landowners opening you know their their places to hunt maybe working with the state if the state can get um you know some grants and or, or some type of agreement whether it's a tax break or or subsidies that that will help these landowners um i know they do it out west for farming you know if you go into wyoming and you want to antelope, you know, hunt for pronghorn antelope I mean, most of the, quote unquote, public land and walk-in areas. Those are actually private lands that, you know, the, the government works with these private ranchers because the ranchers want the antelope thinned out because they're eating all the alfalfa and those pivots that they're trying to feed their cattle with. So there can be win-win situations there. Um, but, you know, that access, I think the the private land that's, that's shrunk. These farms that are developed—that's um, what's hurting the hunting numbers, in my opinion, more than anything else.
1: Yeah, I, I actually work with a guy who, you know, he grow, he's grown—he's uh, in his fifties and he's grown up. You know, always hunting—it's just what he grew up doing. And he hunts public land because, you know, he lives in an area where he there—he can't just go out in his backyard and hunt. I'm lucky enough that my sister lives on sixty acres and it's all wooded, so I got lucky with that. But you know, he doesn't. So he hunts public land, but he's like, you know, I have, you always have those people that are coming in. You know, I've been in my stand for an hour before sunlight getting ready. And then you got the people coming in like right at sunlight, just kind of messing things up. And, you know, he's like, I put a camera out and, looked in like the next time next time i went out there's three cameras right there and you know it, all that stuff and you're gonna have that and it is becoming an overpopulation thing with the hunters in the public land because i i think i agree with you hundred percent you know people are losing their land the people farmers are developing and i mean we see it in our town we got intel coming into the and you know a farmer pretty much sold his all of his land and i mean he's set for a long long time and his grandkids are set for a long time with the money that he got from the payment but or from the land but it's you you, they're right there you just anymore when i go back to my hometown where i grew up i look at it and i'm like it's more and more developed every single time i come back even if i'm gone for a month or a week it seems like there's more and more that just keeps getting developed and it's it's crazy to look at because my parents grew up there too and they're like i mean it, it's you should sort of seen it back when we were growing up. It was completely different. Like this road used to be a dirt road, and now it's one yeah, of the yeah. heaviest traffic roads in town.
0: Absolutely, and and you know it's good for that landowner. You know they were able to cash in. Um, I I don't blame them at all. No, yeah, I, would, I I would feel I feel real. I'm sure they they probably did a lot of soul searching. You know this is land that they've farmer. They've worked for maybe generations. Right grandparents great-grandparents worked that land and it's hard to give up sentimentality and and history and your family but man it's really hard to pass up millions of dollars that will set you up for life and i i can't fault them for that you know if Mm -hmm. i if i try to take their perspective it does hurt when that's your property uh but it also helps if it's your property and, 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 you make that money on it. But, you know, and a lot of people fear that hunting is, is becoming the rich man's game uh, because, you know, if you have private land and you, know, you see people always, you know, complaining about, Oh, that's, you know, you shot that deer because it's daddy's farm and it's, you know, and, you know, rich dad bought you this place, or, you know, you had money, you're able to pay for these hunts and things like that. And, I don't knock them either. I mean, good for them. Good for them that they're able to do that. And I look at that as motivation for that should be motivation for someone who who doesn't have access or they they don't like the public land that that they hunt. Well, hey man, get out there and you know get after it so you can then afford your place, whether it's a lease or whether you buy your own land or something like that. But man, there's opportunity, man. This is America, you know, get out there and get it if you want it
1: exactly i love that before we you know we're kind of starting to run short on time so i wanted to get into you know the one thing that i really wanted to talk to you about because i'm most intrigued by it, is the falconry So, what is falconry for the listeners who you know you know might not be from your audience but are from more of my audience what is falconry and like how does it work
0: so falconry as a paraphrased definition is hunting with a trained raptor so whether that's a hawk a falcon or an eagle or even an owl um and and hunting with that bird is is critical to the definition you know if you have a hawk and you train it to fly to your fist and it eats off your fist and it it'll follow you through the woods and you know it comes back to you and you have it but you don't hunt it. Well, that's pet keeping. That's not falconry. Falconry is actually hunting with an animal. Now it is a federally regulated sport. There are roughly 6,000 falconers in the United States, about 10,000 in the world. Um, I live in Virginia. There are about 75 licensed falconers in Virginia. Probably I'd guess maybe around 40 or 50 who are who are actively hunting uh birds this year, this upcoming year. And what it is is you'll take a bird, typically a wild caught bird, and we're one of the only countries in the world where you could trap a wild raptor, keep it, train it, and hunt with it. Most other countries you have to buy them. And a lot of countries it's illegal to do. But um what I typically do is I will go out into the wild. I'll trap a bird. I will get that bird to trust me. I'll get that bird to understand that I'm not going to eat it. I am going to feed it. And once it understands that I'm not going to eat it, and I've built a partnership with it, that if it does things for me, it will eat. If it goes to a lure, it's going to eat. If it comes to my fist, it's going to eat. Once I get that trust, And I can take it outside and it will fly to me to my fist and eat off my fist. And then I can start hunting and I'll take that bird out. And I'm I'm skipping over a a lot of steps because it's very, very complicated and there's a lot of baby steps in there, but I'll take that Hawk out. Let's say, in fact, right up here is a, is a picture of a red tailed Hawk uh, going after a, uh, a rabbit. Uh, I'll take that Hawk out into the woods and I'll get it to follow me from tree to tree. And I'll, I'll try to flush game. I'll take it to an area where I know there's a ton of rabbits. Like a, it's difficult to not step on a rabbit. There's so many. And that Hawk will understand that. Wow. If I follow this guy, he's either going to feed me or he's going to flush squirrels or rabbits for me. And then that bird is hardwired in when it sees prey. It it attacks and it goes and hits them. It'll kill them. Now won't people ask, well, does it, retrieve these animals to you. No, because a rabbit weighs more than a red-tailed hawk does. You know, a big red tail might weigh three pounds. You know, most of them are two pounds. And uh squirrels, again, I can't necessarily a really big red tail might be able to fly with a small squirrel, but you know, usually they're gonna grab it on the ground. And then there's a process of me walking up to it. And since I've built that trust, it will allow me to come over and I can trade it off. I can give it a piece of meat. And then use a little bit of sleight of hand and take the take the game, uh, hide the game so it's focused on the food that's you know on my fist. It lets go of the game. I block the game uh, from from the hawk's view and I put it in my in my bag or my vest so it doesn't see it. And then I can go on and continue hunting, or or I can go and hunt the next day. And then I've got game in the bag. The the hawk ate, and then we go out the next day and we do it again. Um, There are other ways uh, that people practice falconry. For example, if they actually are using falcons, they may take that falcon and, like, let's say a bird dog, and they'll have a bird dog out out west, and they're hunting sage grouse, for example. And they'll send their dog out, and their dog will go on point, and then they will take their falcon out. They'll take the hood off. The falcon will fly. The falcon will go up 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet in the air. And it will do what's called waiting on. It will circle above the, the dog and the falconer and wait for game to flush. And then you go over, flush the grouse or the pheasant or whatever it is, quail, and then that falcon comes in on a dive. It's called a stoop and will dive down and hopefully capture the uh the game. And then the same process of trading off happens and and it's exciting. It's it's absolutely one of those one of those very primitive uh sports that it date back dates back at least in recorded history 6,000 years but most likely it goes back farther than that four to 6,000 years there's debates on that but it, most likely it's been going on you know since we started you know really domesticating animals um uh, you can't domesticate uh, a raptor but um you can definitely use them in that way and and you know one of the things I like about trapping a wild bird is that I can trap it and you trap birds that are that are juvenile so in their very first year they haven't even completed a first year of life Um, so they're not in the breeding population yet and let's take a red tail hawk for example there's reports out there that hey they have a 70 to 90 percent mortality rate in their first year so if you trap a bird and you give it vet care you give it food, you give it shelter, it's going to most likely, very good chance, it's gonna get through that winter, its first winter. So you're giving it about a 90% chance of survival, not mortality. So it gets out into the spring, it's fat and happy, it's been hunting like crazy, catching game, three, four times a week, and you release it back into the wild. Now you can keep them for as long as you want, but typically I release them and I start it again in the and the next fall. So it's really cool that I'm I'm able to kind of help from a conservation aspect, but then also, you know, it gives that bird, you know, it gives me an opportunity to keep it if I want, or gives that puts that bird back into the breeding population. So it's it's a it's a cool sport, man. It's it's uh not very many people do it, but it's it's very, very rewarding. How long does it usually take for you to build that trust with that that bird so typically uh, i I'll, I'll use a red-tailed hawk for example because that's what I've hunted with the most um, from the day that I trapped the bird four to five weeks out we're hunting and I, I feel as though if you wait any longer than that, they start relying more on you for food than and I They won't lose their ability to hunt but they're not as sharp to hunt um if you do it too early like let's say within a week or two then they're a little bit too wild you haven't built enough of a bond with them and not not really a bond a bond is the wrong word you don't bond with them like you would a dog or or any other animal any domesticated animal at all it's more of a a partnership so it's a trust and a partnership so once you start building that you just take those baby steps but i would say at a minimum that i would go out would be three weeks maybe four weeks you know i think four to five to six weeks is kind of that magic that magic area that magic window and every single hawk is different once you know that you know they're going to follow you through through the woods you should be out hunting you know and there's falconers out there who are afraid to lose their their hawks and it it does happen and if you're a falconer most likely you've lost a bird and they've they've gone off with whether they were fat and happy and they just decided you know what i don't really need to hunt i'm just going to go find a place to roost and you lose track of them you can't find them um that does happen and it doesn't really matter i mean they're they can hunt on their own so it's not like they're at a detriment. They don't need you to be out there and they can fly away whenever they want. Uh, but they choose to stick around because they know it's a partnership. It's, they, they look at you as one a food source and two a game source. They're like, wow, this, I fi- all I have to do is follow this guy and rabbits jump out from under his feet and I get to kill him and I eat and I get full. It's, it's win-win for me. So I, uh, you know, they're not, they're not really. I don't think they're as cognitive, you know, as as a human is or anything like that. They're not like super intelligent beings, but they know and they learn very quickly that, hey, this is a good relationship, and I'm going to stick with it.
1: What you you mentioned red tail hawk a lot. Is that usually? You said that's typically what you use. Is there is that the specific bird that you like to use? Because I know that you mentioned you know a lot of different types of birds that you can use for it. Is there a reason that you use red tail more or like what is your favorite bird to use and why kind of
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh a lot of folks will get into falconry because oh they just think uh, an owl is so pretty and they want to they want to have an owl or you know an eagle is the most beautiful thing ever and I I want an eagle or you know whatever the case may be whatever their favorite animal is, favorite bird is. If you're going to get into falconry, one of the one of the most important things to have is suitable game for the bird that you're going to fly. In my area, rabbits and squirrels are abundant, squirrels especially. And one of the best birds to use for, for squirrels for rabbits is a red tailed hawk. Um, goshawks are another excellent. Goshawks are incredible. They're very versatile there. You can hunt, um, quail ducks, geese i've got a buddy whose goshawk has taken wild turkey before um you know everything all the way down to a to a bobwhite quail and and a sparrow if you want so uh but a goshawk is it's like a it's like a souped up ferrari you know that's that's a real that's a real challenging bird um you really have to know what you're doing with a, with a goshawk um red tails are very forgiving they're easy to hunt with and you know, the game is all around me. Um, if I if I was out west and I lived out, let's say, in Wyoming or Montana and there's sage and prairie out there, um, you could definitely hunt with a redtail out there for jackrabbits and, and rabbits and things like that. But I would hunt grouse. I would hunt, you know, upland game with a falcon or a goshawk. So it all depends on on what game is around you, what's plentiful. Because, you know, let's say you have a farm that's, you know, I don't know, let's say 50 acres and you're hunting that farm for rabbits and squirrels five times a week, you're going to burn that area out very, very quickly, even with a redtail, With a goshawk, you're going, to catch, you're going to catch game with a goshawk two, two, maybe three times, every single time you go out. You can hunt with a goshawk for six hours straight and just keep catching game over and over and over again. So you can really, if you wanted to with a goshawk, you could wipe out a rabbit field. You really could, especially if you have a dog involved. I mean, you can really you can really knock the population down. So you need to have a ton of places to hunt. Like I have, I have fifty places that I can squirrel and rabbit hunt. And that's just within twenty minutes of my house. So you have to have an ample supply of game to be able to do it. And red tails for me around here, that's what I can use. And that's why love, that's why I've chosen to hunt a red tail more forgiving it's great on squirrels and rabbits and you know i like them they're pretty they're cool
1: yeah i've seen the pictures on your instagram they are like super awesome looking birds um is a dog typical like is that a typical thing or is that kind of just like an option like obviously it's an option that everybody has but is it tip? like
0: do most people use dogs or is it kind of a preference it's definitely a preference, um, and it depends on the game too. I mean, if you're if you want to hunt grouse or quail, you better have <laughs> you better have a dog <laughs> and, and have a good pointer. Um, if you're hunting rabbits and squirrels, I mean, you know, you can go out and bust brush, you know, get through those briars and get your brush pants on. And I mean, I'm I'm full head to toe, you know, in Carharts and 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 brush brush pants and brush clothes, you know, when I'm going after rabbits. Um, a dog makes it a lot easier, you know. And for a lot of uh, older falconers who are rabbit hunters, they'll use mini dots. And I mean, uh, not even just older hunters, but anyone, you know, who who really wants to up the up the ante and get more game. A dog's just another tool, and they're going to help you. And it's also fun. I mean, for anyone who's who's done any dog training, whether it's for waterfowl or upland or whatever, you know, it, it adds a, a different aspect to it. that's rewarding um it just it it increases your chances um i think it's more rewarding um i have a jack russell that i use and he's a little monster i mean he's an absolute monster when it comes to anything that's smaller than him and even if it's a big another big dog or anything like that he's he's ready to go but i mean he's tiny but just ferocious when it comes to when it comes to game but then a hawk he's been hit by a hawk a couple times and he learned at a very young age, I keep my distance from every red tail that I see. I'll flush it for them, and i'll he'll really even help the hawk hold a rabbit or a squirrel, but he keeps his distance without a doubt but they, they they increase your odds, they help out a ton, but it's not necessary.
1: I guess uh one of the questions I meant to ask like at the very beginning of us talking about this was like how did you get into it? What sparked your interest to get into it?
0: I read the book by Gene Craighead George called My Side of the Mountain. And it's like one of those books that every young kid, preteen boy should read. It's about a kid who lived in New York City with a family. And he was like one of nine kids. He ran away from home, went to the Catskill Mountains on this family property and tried to live off the land. And he got a peregrine falcon out of a nest And trained it to hunt. And that's how he lived, you know, in the wilderness by himself. There's no amenities whatsoever. He had a penknife and flint and steel and his wits and his knowledge. And he lived off the land. And, man, when I read that when I was like 10 or 11 years old, I knew. I'm like, that's what I'm going to do when I I get older. I'm running away. I'm going to the mountains. I'm getting a hawk. And I I contacted the Maryland DNR. And I said, I want to purchase a peregrine falcon. How do I do it? And they said, whoa, 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 hold on a second. First (laughs) of all, you need to be 14 years old. You need to go through a process. And I said, well, I'm 15. I was like 12, you know, and and they sent me the packet. And I realized after doing tons of research that the time that you put into it, there's no way I would have been able to do it at that age with the situation that I was in with my family. And I had a supportive family, but I, I was wrestling then. Um, at a very competitive you know level and, um, and so I just knew I didn't have time but I knew one day I would do it and when I became an adult, I got settled in um, got a place where I, I was able to build facilities and and have time to to dedicate to it uh, that's when i I went full bore and uh, put the time into it and did it and if anyone really wants to do it, they'll do it you know it's like anything else. if you really want to do something, you're going to find a way you know, to do it. And uh, if I've been doing it ever since. It's been a blast. I mean, I really
1: appreciate all the the hunting talk that we have, but we're going to move into the final segments of the podcast before we get too far or too late. Um, so I have a question that I ask all of my guests, and it's a very fun question for me. I enjoy asking it because I always get some unique answers. But if you could go back in time and tell your 16 year old self one
0: thing, what would it be? Oh boy, focus, focus a little bit more on the important things in your life. And, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean family, even though that is absolutely critical. You know, I'm, I'm a faith-based guy. God is number one. Um, Those things are obviously important. But what I mean is the, the things that will set you up later in life, focus on those, like your discipline. Your dedication, your determination. My dad always talked about that the three D's, you know, discipline, determination, and dedication. If you can put those into your life and start that at 16 years old, you are going to set yourself up for, you know, for, I guess, a more fulfilling life. And you're going to be a lot happier for it. You're going to have struggles. But if you have those three, you're going to be able to get through those difficult times. A lot better, and you're gonna have a better relationship with yourself, you know if you're a faith based person uh with God with your family um and and you'll be more fulfilled so the three d's dedication discipline, and determination
1: I've never heard that, but I really like that that's, that's my old
0: man he he's my my dad is a boss. check out his instagram <laughs> I think it's bill p fifty seven I believe um, he followed me dude his 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 trophy room, his game room is is incredible. I, he probably has oh geez, 60, 70 mounts in his game room. It's like a three-car garage. It's got I mean, you name it from water buffalo to elk to mountain goats to mountain lions to his, you know, full mounted uh, male and female lion over uh over Impala. He's got um f- and my mom has a uh, world class full mounted sable he just got finished with a musk ox hunt um he's he's really has some experience when it comes to hunting and he's hunted all his life and he's known that's what I want to do and i I just believe me i've I've modeled myself after him and my grandfather, his father, and you know when it comes to hunting and things like that and and when it comes to the three d's uh, you know I think he probably learned that from my mother because she is she's strong and she's a she's tiny five foot nothing and she's a fireball and i mean she's she's really an impressive human being you know when it just comes to all around you know dedication to your family and and to you know and and to being a good person and and uh but yeah if, if you want to follow somebody my, my dad is a he's the man I'll definitely
1: give him a follow, but with that, that moves us into the best segment of the podcast, which is Motivation Monday. Motivation Monday is the point in the episode where a lot of guests to give the Roughnecks listeners a little inspirational bump to set the tone for their week as they listen on Monday morning. So what do you got for Motivation Monday?
0: Get after it. You're thinking about anything that's going on this upcoming week, whether it's your work, whether it's, you know, you're having a little trouble at home. Um, there's a buck that, you know, has, has gotten around you and you can't find him. Um, anything that you're thinking about right now whether it's work related or home related or personal, personally, you know, it's something that you want better for this week, man, get after it and don't wait, do it right now. Like after you listen to this podcast, put your phone down and get after it, make a step towards it and you will be better for it. The biggest thing, like
1: sometimes all it takes is just starting. Is like getting after it, essentially. Yeah, like just starting. Sometimes that is all it takes to, you know, create the next best thing or, you know, the ideas start flowing in. If you're writing, whatever it is you're doing, all you got to do, the biggest step is just starting. And once you start, get after it. Don't quit. Just keep going. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Like you said, sometimes all it takes is a start. Every single other time, it just takes you to follow that start. Just get after it, man. Yep.
1: I really appreciate it. Uh, Where can people follow
0: you on social media if they would like to? So um, Instagram is um, underscore William Phillips underscore. Um, You can also follow me on Hunt Urban. Um, You can see me on uh, some of the tethered videos um, on YouTube and obviously on the Hunt Urban um, YouTube channel. Um, we're, we're putting out a lot of content. We've got like 16 videos in the queue right now. That elk video, um, is going to be out here. I'd say in the next week or two. So, um, check that out. But yeah, hunt urban, um, underscore William Phillips underscore, um, and tethered. I mean, that I'm, I'm not an employee of tethered or anything like that, but. You know, I've, I've done a lot of work with those guys. I've hunted a lot with them. They're all good buddies of mine. And Taylor's uh, Taylor works for Tether too, so that makes it that makes it a lot easier too. But uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. And um, you hit me up. And if you have any questions about falconry, about of deer hunting, I mean, that is so hot right now. Talk about public land pressure. Jeez, that's it's insane. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you have any questions about that type of stuff, urban hunting, anything like that, hit me up.
1: I would definitely put all those links for uh, all of that in the episode description as well, but I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, definitely enjoyed this episode and, you know, hearing some a little bit of a different side of things outside of what I do, but definitely somebody who enjoys hunting and stuff like that. It was awesome to uh, listen to your stories and every uh, your advice and all that kind of stuff, but until Friday, you guys know the deal. Life is hard and it's going to knock you down just like a bull does to a bull rider. Don't let the bull of life walk all over you, get up, grab the bull by the horns, and take control of your life. Roughnecks out. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Roughnecks podcast. If you liked today's episode, then be sure to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with a friend if you got some value from it. Head over to social media and follow the Roughnecks podcast on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to that YouTube channel. Don't forget to get you some of that merch by heading over to roughneckspodcast.com and subscribe to the newsletter while you're there. See y'all next week. Roughnecks out.